All right, I got the mic. I got uh, Theron's telling me I got to be forceful, so we'll see what we can talk about today. Um, it's really weird talking on Mother's Day when I'm realizing I'm not a mother. So uh, we'll see how well all of this goes. I've seen that job. I, I remember that uh, when Jackie went through childbirth with the first child, you know, I was, boy, I was in there and I was thinking, boy, sweetheart, if I could do this for you, I would, you know, kind of thing. And, and I remember when the second child came along, you know, I was just kind of glad that it went quickly and we had the second child. And by the third time Jackie was, was uh, in delivery with the third child, it was like, there is no way I would do this even if I possibly could. <laughs> just not going to do that. But happy Mother's Day to everybody. Uh, Jim suggested that he would be talking possibly this week. Uh, we kind of wound up switching around sermons a little bit about Mary pondered these things in her heart. And uh, it dawned on me that uh, we've been going through the life of Christ um, on Mother's Day. Why don't we go through the life of Mary? So we're going to do that. That's part of the reason we did that last song we specifically asked for. Kind of put us in a mood to be thinking about things from Mary's perspective. So as we jump into that, uh, I do want to point out, I guess I wound up with Jim's slides here too, so uh, we want to remind you about the podcasts and uh, that you can go on our website and uh, get find old sermons and so forth and uh, work on from there. So for Mother's Day, Jackie got a dehydrator that she asked for, honest, uh, and a mom joke book. <clears throat> there are several jokes that are shown up here, um, and of course you can read them, but to read them real quick... My husband and I made a rule never to go to bed angry. We knew, who knew you could go for six days without sleep? Uh, what's the difference between me when I'm nine months pregnant and a supermodel? Nothing, because my husband values his life. Okay. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, is it still your husband's fault? Okay, just checking. True story. Uh, remember we had that earthquake through the D.C. area here, was about 10, 11, 12 years ago, I think, or something. And I was working with somebody at that point, and he said, this is the honest truth, he said that he went, was out in the garage and he was supposed to be taking the trash out. The earthquake hit like about 4.35 in the morning. He was up extra early, he was taking out the trash. He came back in and he says that he came through the garage, the earthquake hit, and the whole house shook. And as he walked into the house, his wife was sitting stark up in bed. She looked at him and she said, what did you do? <laughs> Obviously, the earthquake was his house, his fault. The house was shaking because of that. So anyway, you may ask, why does Jackie need a mom's joke book when she's got me? And yes, I do realize that that can be taken several ways. You can take it however it fits best, I suppose. All right. So there were two women in our nation's history who were both first lady and mother of a president. Abigail Adams was the wife of John Adams, our second president, and John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. Barbara Bush, too, was the wife of George H. Bush, the 41st president, and mother of George W. Bush, the 43rd president. Coincidentally, both sons and husbands had the same first name as well. One story that Barbara Bush tells that was very insightful came on the cam campaign trail as her husband was running for re-election. The presidential motorcade pulled into this gas station not too far from where Barbara had been raised, it turns out. And as they pulled up, of course, the gas station owner, seeing that this was the presidential motorcade, personally came out to put gas in the engine. And as he came out, Barbara jumps out of the, her side of the car 
and goes and's talking to this guy animatedly, and George is watching this whole thing, and uh, it turns out that when Barbara gets back in the car, George asks her, he said, who is this guy? And Barbara explained that she had been dating him very seriously in high school. And George, well, how seriously? She said, well, we were talking about getting married. And George said, well, isn't that interesting? He said, if you'd have married him, you'd have been married to a guy who ran a gas station instead of the president of the United States. To which Barbara smiled and said, George, if I'd have married him, he'd have been president. <laughs> and behind every great woman, uh, great man, stands a woman who probably couldn't have been more surprised, as they say, I think. All right, so I wanted to let you know that I wanted to try and have you join me, if you will, on a journey through the Bible as we look at the biblical, historical Mary, mother of Jesus. My pastor, where I grew up, observed that the marquee that talks about a church having only the pure word of God being preached is very limiting. You can only read from the Bible. You can't comment on it. Once you add a comment, it immediately ceases to be the pure word of God. Today, we're going to have a shot at being somewhat pure with God's word. I will read much of it directly from the Bible. As we read the passages, try and put yourself in Mary's sandals. Note that it will be very Christmas-like. Uh, that is a big part of what the Bible tells us about Mother Mary. And finally, consider as we read, what did Mary ponder? What did she treasure in her heart? about having her oldest child be God's only perfect son. All right. First note that Mary was prophesied about more than 600 years before she was born. In Isaiah 7, 14, he tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, as Matthew tells us, God with us. And let's look a little bit at Mary's background. If we're going to do a biography, that's a good place to start. Luke 23, Luke 3:23 tells us, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. The lineage of Jesus differs between the gospels of Matthew and of Luke. You can see kind of the table up there. Both go back to Abraham. Luke even goes all the way back to Adam. And they share the same names in that line. They split, however, at the name of King David. Theologians suggest that Matthew, the proper Jewish Levite, then follows the royal line of Joseph, giving Jesus legal ancestry to the throne of David. Luke, on the other hand, and the blue on the other side, the Greek physician, then follows the physical line of Mary through a different son of David, Nathan. By the way, Nathan means gift in Hebrew. Thus, as all good biographies go, we begin by talking about Mary's background through her father, Heli, Joseph's father-in-law, as it was supposed. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. About 200 AD, church father Tertullian of Carthage reported the, cal the calculation that Gabriel's announcement to Mary occurred on the 14th of Nisan. That's today's March 25th. That is the day on which Passover lambs are selected, four days before the Passover. As a result, the Feast of Annunciation is celebrated by Roman Catholics and other ancient churches on March 25th to this day. If you do the math, exactly nine months after March 25 is December 25, the day that we celebrate Christmas. Gabriel thus appears to Mary 33 years and three days before the Last Supper and Jesus' death on the cross. What was Mary pondering, treasuring at this point, do you suppose? Was she frightened with the angel? Was she feeling secure? Was she puzzled? Maybe all of the above? I'm certain this is one of those first points where Mary begins to ponder things in her heart, as any woman would in that type of a situation. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried down to the, in the hill country of Judea. There she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, uh, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord, believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Note that Gabriel dropped a heavy hint. Why don't you go and visit your relative Elizabeth? This actually helps Mary with several things in this particular unique condition. Number one, she will have a sympathetic ear. Elizabeth herself is going through a miraculous pregnancy of her own. Not only that, but she brings maturity to the relationship as well. Finally, Elizabeth will be able to vouch for Mary from a most authoritative position. And two, it gives Mary a chance to get away from prying eyes for the first three months of her pregnancy. She has time to ponder her new condition and to plan the extremely difficult words she will say to her fiancé and her parents. I wonder what Mary is pondering and treasuring up in her heart at this point. Next, Mary, in response to Elizabeth, breaks forth into this beautiful set of poetry called the Magnificat. And then rather, uh, let's see here, um, it is referred to as the Magnificat, after the first Latin word in the message, magnifies or glorifies my soul, the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to this passage as the first Advent hymn. Mary put herself in the humble state of a servant of God, and thus puts herself as serving the very child she will bear, matching that song that we sang coming into this. Not surprisingly, many folks have set the poetry to song. It seems a shame to just read it, 
So I'd like to try and play a clip from the John Michael Talbot version as sung by the soloist in the SFDS Sunday 7 p.m. choir. If we could go ahead and play that, please.
Thank you. So, the next big step. What is she going to tell Joseph? This is how, reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, woke up he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And she gave him the name Jesus. Wow, okay, sorry. That's not working very well. Let's fix that. Thought that was going. All right, let's see if we get this to work again. There we go. Glad that worked that well. All right, so that's the verses I was reading that you didn't see. Joseph exemplifies my favorite verse in Ephesians 4.15, and that is to speak the truth in love. He feels the need to follow the truth as he sees it, and that is to divorce Mary. Yet he also decides out of deep love to do it privately. Joseph was also obedient to his God. He did exactly what the angel told him to do, not only to take Mary as his wife, but to name their son Jesus, Jehovah saves. It was clear when she did have a boy rather than a girl that at least something special was going on. Finally, note that they did not consummate their marriage until Mary gave birth to Jesus. That key conjunctive seems to suggest that they did go on to have other children. Now, next big event comes place at the day at night that Jesus is born. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own house to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem. He was there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord turned around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David is a Savior that has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace on those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. 
When they said, had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard about it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they heard and seen, which, they were, ju- which were just as they had been told. The census, while Quirinius was governor of Syria, probably occurred about 6 B.C. Dionysius ex Augustus. The monk who gave us the BCAD designation was probably off by about 1% when he set about trying to set all that up about 525 AD. He originally intended to make year one the year that Jesus was born, and it's not all that bad for an ancient calculator. He was 99% right, but that's where the 6, that's where the 6 BC date comes in for Jesus' birth. Joseph probably acted as midwife to Mary, I've often thought about his role in the whole process. I can see the poor carpenter holding the newborn in his rough hand and wondering, Mary needs help, what do I do with this, meanwhile? Okay, all right. He looks around, of course, and then he sees the manger. manger's got all this soft, you know, straw in it. It's a good place to lay the baby, and he can help take care of Mary. So he, you know, okay, I'll put him in the manger real quick and go over and help Mary, right? So he's trying to help deliver the placenta and all this other stuff, this process. And... All of a sudden, Mary looks up and goes, Joseph, where's the baby? And Joseph says, in the feeding trough. And I can pick, you put him where? In, in the feeding trough. It's soft, it's warm, the baby won't fall out. What's wrong with this? I can't believe you put our baby in a feeding trough. Okay? And as if that's not bad enough, a few minutes later, a whole bunch of dirty shepherds show up at the front of this cave, you know, barn thing, and they want to know, where's the baby in the feeding trough? You know, it's like, heaven even thinks it's a stupid idea. You know, how can poor Joseph win in this kind of a situation? Fortunately, Scripture points out that it was Mary that brought forth the baby and put him in the feeding trough, and that's probably mostly the way it happened, although I wouldn't be surprised if some of that other dialogue took place as well. The shepherds here, though, are key. The first folks to see the newborn Messiah are the modern equivalent of janitors working the night shift. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have these guys showing up on your doorstep at 3 a.m. to tell you about the baby Messiah? And you're amazed and not angry? It must have really been something about them that made you willing to believe what they had to say. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. It starts on the very night that Jesus is born. And she starts her reflections on the appearance of the humble shepherds first and foremost. That's the point where Mary starts to ponder these things in her heart, that these shepherds show up at the door. Reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 38, I'm going to kind of skip through this a little bit, but the time comes for the purification rites of the baby. And there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who is righteous and devout in verse 25. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He goes to the temple, and Simeon takes the baby in his arms and praises God, saying, Sovereign Lord, in verse 29, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a sight for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. Joseph and Mary marvel at what he says, and then Simeon looks at Mary and pins her probably right where she stands. This child is destined to call the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword, Mary, 
will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, prophetess, Anna, of the tribe of, uh, the daughter of Phineal, the tribe of Asher. She's very old. Um, she'd been a widow up to the point where she was 84. Coming up to them at that moment in verse 38, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I have to think, was Mary a bit embarrassed that she and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb in their offering? It, as, well as, a, as well as the dove. I, I suppose that Joseph was probably pretty tapped out. He just paid taxes. They were three days away from home, and they were running a place probably at that point. Mary trusted Simeon. I just want to point out that Mary trusted Simeon enough to hold their one-month-old baby. Uh, kind of Tim and Anna's son kind of becomes a big passeron pack. And it's kind of cute, though, that and, and or, you know, you, you really have to trust this old guy that shows up and is all excited about holding the baby. There must have been something in the old man's face that told both Joseph and Mary it was all right. What Simeon's voice, when Simeon's voice grows strained as he points out that a sword will pierce Mary's own soul too, what was she thinking at that point? What she was, was she pondering? Trying to go through Mary's sandals here to look at these events. And what does a mom think when she gets a very, very scary prediction about this? And then Anna, at least 84 years old, spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I suppose she would have probably told a local pillar if it would have stood still long enough to listen to her talk about this exciting new baby. Then, uh, after this, the third event of Christmas shows up. Again, we're talking about dragging you through Christmas. Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 12. Um, you guys know the story about the wise men showing up to talk to King Herod of Judea. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Joseph, um, Herod calls together all the wise men, and they tell them that the, uh, in verse uh, 5, in Bethlehem in Judea is where the uh, baby is to be born, the Messiah. Uh, as you, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod calls the Magi secretly and wants to find out where the baby's been born. Um, he, want, he lies to them and tells them that he wants to come and worship the baby. The wise men hear about it. Uh, they go ahead and head out, and the star comes to rest and shows the place where the baby is resting. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream uh, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another path. The tyrant Herod is disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Does this news arrive before the men? Does, does the news about Herod being disturbed arrive to where Mary and Joseph are staying in the house before they get there? I mean, it, it, this all of Jerusalem being disturbed about the uh, Herod being disturbed is not unusual. Herod had a way of making everybody be disturbed. And then another thought. Somehow, how does a star point to a house? I mean, there's way up there. There's a house down here. It's always interesting. I've kind of wondered exactly how all that happens. The house also suggests that Joseph put out his carpentry shingle. They were planning to probably stay there in Bethlehem. Uh, probably, based on some of the hints in the text, Jesus was probably about a year old at that point in time. And then you've got to wonder a little bit about the gifts from the kings. 
from, from, the, from the Magi. There's gold for a king, there's frankincense for worship, and myrrh is normally an embalming fluid. It would be like the third guy comes up with a little small white casket and says, this is for your baby. I mean, you talk about Mary pondering things, I would think this would be the point where she'd be very deeply wondering what's going on. And is this kind of an overlay on what Simeon has said about a sword is going to pierce your own soul too? I can't imagine, but a young mom is really pretty worried about all of this. So we're walking through Mary's sandals on this Mother's Day, trying to see through Mary's eyes to see what things look like. When the Magi had gone, Joseph all of a sudden has a dream. Get to this one here. Um, And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. When, skipping down to verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the, from the wise men. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There's a number of different drawings and sorts of that I could pick for that one. That one seems to be uh, perhaps the most poignant of a young mother trying to protect her son and panicked about what's going to happen to him. I wonder when they got down to Egypt, did Mary get the news about Herod's deed? Did Mary probably know many of the mothers and her boys who were killed? Did she suffer from survivor's guilt? Was this one of those times where Mary pondered yet again? Did she consider Simeon's warning and perhaps the gift of the myrrh from the the third magi? After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, uh, go back, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel where those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So the, the... the diagram in the upper, the picture photo in the upper right-hand corner is what is believed to be the tomb of Herod. Herod had this big, gigantic tomb set up, and uh, he had given orders to kill, uh, I'm sorry, um, <clears throat> he, uh, Herod had given orders so that uh, Josephus stated that Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho. He ordered their execution at the time of his death, so some display of grief would occur. His brother-in-law, Alexis, and his sister, Salome, did not carry out this particular wish of Herod, but they did assist in getting Herod's body and a great funeral procession escorted to the top of that mount that's shown there. Some other archaeological issues, but Herod basically had it all set up. So after Herod died, it's called Herod the Great, Joseph got up in verse 21, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea and the place of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they say. The next story we, we see with Mary is when he, Jesus grew and became strong. Uh, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When Jesus was about 12 years old, this is the last bit we get of, with Jesus as a boy, 
uh, he, uh, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, many of you I'm sure know this story, Jesus stayed in behind in Bethlehem, but his parents were unaware of it. Thinking that Jesus was in their company, they traveled up on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to, find him, to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at, what Jesus, at Jesus' understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, of course, they were astonished. Uh, Jesus said, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I'd be in the house of my father? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. And again, this phrase shows up, specifically in Scripture. This is the second time. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. I was trying to get an idea of a perspective from some moms here, and I got their permission at this point. Um, I, you, as, you're, as you've got a mother who's got maybe not 12, but even a little bit younger, and you're in the department store, and all of a sudden, boom, the kid's gone. Oh, panic. You know, I, I mean, I'm a dad. <laughs> I went through that process once or twice, okay? Where did the kid go? And uh, one of the mothers here said, my gosh, I've lost the son of God. <laughs> you, know, you can imagine what it was like for Mary trying to go back and, and put that piece together. Uh, and then to get this strange answer. You know, it's like, you'd almost like, I'm sorry, Mom, I shouldn't have done that kind of sort of thing. But no, what, didn't you know I was going to be in the house of God? I mean, it's sort of a 12-year-old thing to, think, to say, I suppose. They don't always seem to be completely wholly rational, but there he is in the house of God and astonishing everybody else. Now, there's not a lot more we're going to get about Jesus. Two, two other points we're going to find in Mary's life. One is the very first miracle that Jesus performs. He changes water into wine. On John 2, 1 to 12, there's a wedding feast up in Canaan, um, and his mother says they have no wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour's not yet come. But his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars. That's kind of what's trying to be shown in there. These are jars that are laid out of stone with the technology that they have of the day. It's not these thin little clay-type things. This is a big chunk of stone that they got spinning. Uh, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and guess what? It was the best tasting stuff in the house. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after they're basically drunk. What Jesus did here in the Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. After that, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So again, I find myself wondering, um, <clears throat> what I want to point out, I guess, that hospitality was very important in the Middle East. This was a capital concern being out of wine, especially at a wedding. Was Mary puzzled at Jesus' response? Did she know that he had the capability to do something about this? Stone jars holding 30 gallons were only technologically possible starting about 20 A.D., and they disappeared in 70 A.D. when Titus raised Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting to me to this day that when I look at that, it's really a miracle that Jesus turned water into wine. The interesting miracle is that our Bible tells us that this technology existed in a window that's only 40 years, or 50, 50 years wide almost 2,000 years ago. The Bible that you're holding in your hand 
when it says there's large stone jars that could hold 30 gallons, is as much miraculous in its precision of the reporting of a historical event as it could possibly be. And this is something we didn't even know about, the technology and everything else, until just the last several decades, that that capability existed. There's one other interesting point in Jesus' ministry where Mary shows up, one or two other ones, but one in particular. Um, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of Jesus, for they said, he's out of his mind. Wow. Mary and perhaps his older brothers are hitting a point where they think Jesus is crazy. He's out of his mind. He's been stressed. He's been going through so many people being around him. Then his mother and brothers arrived at this event. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of his Whoever does God's will is my mother, brother and sister and mother. I find myself wondering yet again um, about his family being there. What was Mary pondering at this point? Jesus says, Jesus, I guess, is politely saying, no, I'm not crazy. If you're going to do the will of my father, then you are my mother and brother and father. And, and sisters, okay? And that must have been a bit of a stinging rebuke, I think, for Mary and for Jesus' brothers and perhaps his sisters who may have been in that group as well. What is Mary pondering at this point? One other thing shows up, Matthew 13, 53 to 58. Jesus had finished his parables. Uh, he's, be, he's actually now uh, moved on from there, coming to his hometown in Nazareth. Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? And they did not, Jesus was not able to do, Jesus points out, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I find myself wondering, I guess probably the key thing I want to take away from here, other than we're talking again about Mary, is that we would assume that Joseph and Mary did wind up having four additional sons after Jesus. James, uh, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, also known as <clears throat> Jude, uh, is another translation that we have of his name. The books of James and of Jude we believe, or at least some historians suggest and theologians suggest, came from these half-brothers of Jesus, the two that, two that are mentioned here, uh, James and Jude. So there's more going on. We've got more family. Mary's continuing to be there. And a little bit later, near the cross of Jesus, stood Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, That'd be, that would be John. Standing nearby, Jesus said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, this disciple being John, took Mary home into his home.
Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, this is a different Mary, and Salome, which we believe is Mary's sister. In Galilee, these women had followed him, Jesus, and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. So we've got Mary and this other group of women are all working and helping tend, care for Jesus' needs, and for the needs of the other group who are around him. So Mary is without, with Jesus throughout most of his, if not all of his, three-year ministry throughout. So I kind of wonder what Mary, you, know, you guys know from Scripture and so forth, the different things Mary was there when they happened. What was she thinking about her son uh, leading all of this? And the wonderful sacrifice that she makes to be part of him with his ministry. And apparently she recovered from that, you know, that stinging rebuke about being worried about him not having all of his faculties there and uh, was able then to, to accompany her son. Secondly, I kind of find myself wondering, you know, what was it like for Mary to be there while Jesus was being executed? Um, again, uh, talking to another mom, mother in the congregation, uh, she kind of, she told me, she said, if, if she'd have been there, she'd have been dead because she'd have been throwing herself at the cross and the soldiers would have probably just done her right through. Um, and or at least trying to <clears throat> hold him up and help him to breathe or something, you know, as he's hanging on that cross. Uh, what does it do to a mom? And certainly, if Mary hasn't already applied, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Own soul too, from what Simeon had said. I see Mary kind of standing in that type of position going, this is where it really, really hurts. And uh, the famous uh, carving by, I believe it's Michelangelo, the pita, I think it is called, shows Mary holding the body of her son, Jesus, uh, as he is brought down from the cross. One other element in Mary's life that we find in Scripture and in the historical Mary occurs in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Now, Jesus has come back to life. He's been walking, he's been going throughout with the, with the uh, disciples and, and everybody else throughout the Judea, or actually up, up through, up in, uh, mostly up near, near Capernaum. Um, he has been resurrected, he has been uh, assume, assume, he has gone through the assumption up into the sky. And after this, then in verse 12, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Tom, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So as this Pentecost is getting ready to come upon them, they're waiting in the upper room. And you guys know the story about Pentecost where the sound of a rushing wind fills the room and the tongues of fire come to rest on each one of them. And it was interesting to me as I was looking for a, an image to, to add to this that almost all of them include a few women and some of them even put Mary in a more prominent position in relationship to the tongues of fire that are coming to rest on all of them. And that is the last that we see of the biblical Mary. There is one other thing to talk about and wrap up, though. We're talking a little bit about a historical perspective. Some experts suggest that the Apostle John was martyred and buried in Jerusalem like his brother James, while others agree that he traveled to Ephesus, taking Mary along with them before he was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
He would eventually return, John would eventually return to Ephesus where he died and was buried. There is actually, if you see in the bottom left-hand corner of the image there, uh, what is believed, what, what's called the Mary House. And it, while it's not the actual structure itself, it does sit on top of a foundation that dates back to the first, possibly, and or the fourth century. Portions of the building also date back to parts of the seventh century. Nearby is the Basilica of St. John, which was constructed by Justinian I in the sixth century. It stands over the believed burial site of the Apostle John. So it's entirely possible that Mary accompanied John to Ephesus. The map there shows uh, there's a the kind of uh, there shows where Ephesus is in relationship to Patmos. The two red blots up there. The the one in the upper right corner is Ephesus. The lower left corner is Patmos. Patmos is where John uh, claims to have written, and where the Scripture tells us that John wrote the book of Revelation. And many of the cities that John refers to in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and 4, focus around, or 2 and 3, focus around churches around Ephesus there. Now one other thing, just kind of, I, I came across this as I was trying to do my research and so forth on Mary. Um, it, it talks about the Gospel of James. There are many theologies that the Catholic Church holds about Mary that are perhaps a little bit different than we on the more Protestant side work with. A lot of this seems to come from the Gospel of James, and I've recorded this here. The Gospel of James or the, uh, is a second century infancy gospel telling of the miraculous conception of the Virgin Mary. Okay, this is one of the things the Catholic holds, a miraculous conception of Mary herself. It talks about Mary's upbringing and marriage to Joseph. The journey of the couple to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, and events immediately following are given in more detail in this Gospel of James. It is the earliest surviving assertion of the perpetual virginity of Mary, meaning her virginity not just prior to the birth of Jesus, but during and afterward. And despite being condemned by Pope Innocent I in 405 and rejected by the Galatian decree around 500, the Gospel of James became a widely influential source for Mariology. Um, so it, a lot of what we know, and, or at least what, what the Catholic Church takes as theology, comes from this Gospel of James. Not the book of James, but the Gospel of James. It's, it's a, what we would call an apocryphal book. It's not part of the accepted canon. And there's reasons why, I think both biblically and the way God guides things for it not to be that way. But possibly, uh, Mary winds up in Ephesus, where she winds up uh, living with John, to the end of her days. So what was Mary pondering there? And with that, I'll leave you to ponder. And uh, thank you very much for the chance to talk.